book of James, James chapter 5. James is one of the most practical books of the Bible. It's been called the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I hope that if you've been with us over these past few months, you see why. James has talked about how to speak and how to plan for the future and how to treat other people, especially the poor, and so many other ways for us to put our faith to work. But in today's passage, James turns his attention to something that some people say is impractical. He turns his attention to prayer. Now, one of the things that, that kind of drives me crazy is when there's some tragedy, something happens, and people are praying, and they're sending their, their thoughts and their prayers to the families or whatever. But you have some people out there that kind of criticize that and talk down on that. And they say the prayer's not enough. And they, they, they sort of criticize this idea of praying. You know, it's true that sometimes we have to put feet to our prayers. It's true that sometimes God wants us to be the answer to our prayers, but we should never discount prayer as being powerless or impractical. Prayer really can accomplish miraculous things. Prayer really can change people and situations. But it all depends on our attitude and our approach to prayer. James has already in chapter 1 told us that there is a prayerless kind of powerless kind of prayer, and that's faithless prayer. If you remember in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, James says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So when we pray, we have to pray in faith, believing that God hears and answers our prayers. It reminds me of a story, a cute story I heard about a, a little boy was getting into his bed and, and his bedtime and mom walked by the door and saw him in the bed and she stopped and she said, now son, did you say your prayers? And he responded, no mom, I didn't say my prayers, I prayed them. Out of the mouth of babes, right? I mean, I mean he's exactly right. Prayer is more than just words. Prayer is not some incantation. It's more than just sending out thoughts and good vibes into the universe. And when we pray our prayers, not just say them in some kind of mindless, repetitive way, when we truly pray our prayers, God hears and God responds. So in today's passage, James gives us some practical principles for powerful prayer. Let's look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being, as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again. And the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the first principle that James gives us for powerful prayer is that we are to pray in times of hardship. Pray in times of hardship. He says, is any, <clears throat> is any among you suffering? He should pray. 
So James here is returning to a, a common theme in his letter, trials, suffering, hardship, testing. He, this has come up time and time again. And last week we looked at verses 7 through 11 where he tells us that in those times of hardship we're to have patience and perseverance. And so now he's adding to that prayer. Patience, perseverance, and prayer. Now we said this last week, patience is not just sitting back and kind of accepting your faith. For a Christian, patience is an act of waiting on God. It's a hopeful anticipation that God is at work in and through and around us. And in a similar way, perseverance. It's not something that where you just kind of pull yourself up out of the, the mess you're in by your own bootstraps. It's about relying on God's strength to see you through. And how do we obtain this kind of patience? How do we have this sort of perseverance? Through prayer. Prayer is how we apply these things to our lives. And so James says that when we face times of suffering or hardship, the first thing we should do is pray. It's not a last resort. You know, it's sort of like the old bumper sticker that says, when all else fails, pray. You ever seen that? I've always saw that and thought to myself, well, maybe if you prayed first, all else wouldn't have failed, right? Prayer isn't the spare tire in the trunk. It's the air in the tires that keeps us going every day. James put such an emphasis on prayer in his letter, he chose to bookend the letter from the first chapter to the last chapter with prayer. As we looked at just a second ago in chapter 1, he calls us to endure times of hardship with faith-filled prayer. And here at the end, he comes back and he says the same thing. But James doesn't just say that we should count it joy when times are tough and pray when times are tough. He goes on to say that we should praise in times of happiness. We pray in times of hardship. We praise in times of happiness. So what he says there in verse 13, the second half of that, he says, or he says uh, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. So James has a word for us. No matter what life may bring our way, when things are bad, he tells us to pray. When things are good, he tells us to praise. Now, the Greek word there for cheerful is a combination of two words that means good and passions. And that word passions can even be translated as fierceness or wrath. It's a good wrath. That's kind of a weird thing to think about. The point of that word is that it's a powerful, strong emotion that's good, that's positive. Some translations translated as encouraged in the sense that we receive courage. We are encouraged. And so that's what this word means. Now, I think in the context of this verse, the implication is that you've got somebody who's suffered some hardships. They've had hard times. They've prayed about it. And God has answered the prayer. And so now they're cheerful. Now they're giving praise. They are encouraged because their circumstances changed and God has answered their prayer. Now most of us are probably pretty good about praying to God in times of hardship or sadness or confusion, right? When we've got a big decision to make, we probably pray about it. When we are grieving over a loved one that we've lost, we probably pray for God's comfort and strength. When there's too much month at the end of our money, we probably pray for God to provide for us. Even in times of national tragedy, people tend to turn to God. But what about when things are going well? What about when we're successful and blessed? What do we do then? It's like the story in the Gospels where Jesus healed a group of ten lepers. 
And ten of them went off on their way, happy to be healed, and only one came back to say thank you. And it says in Luke 17, beginning of verse 16, that this man, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. By the way, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So I think the principle is pretty simple. Whether it's in times of good or in bad, plenty or in want, sorrow or in joy, we can always pray and we can always praise. Amen? So now James gives us a specific kind of hard time. And that's when we are physically ill, suffering, right? We, we have a, a health need. And so the third principle here he gives us is that we are to pray for physical healing in times of sickness. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 again. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, it's important for us to note the, the meaning of some of these words here. Right? When, when James says the sick, is anyone among you sick? He's not talking about somebody who has the sniffles. Although these days, when you have the sniffles, it can be pretty serious, can't it? I mean, it's, it's nothing to dismiss anymore. But this Greek word means somebody who is so sick that they're incapacitated. It's a, it's a debilitating sickness. It leaves them weak. It, it's something that's life-altering. They can't go to work. They can't get up and go to church. A Puritan named Thomas Manton said about this verse, "...the elders must not be sent for upon every light occasion." as soon as the head or foot acheth. Like I said, he was a Puritan. But in such grievous diseases, wherein there is danger and great pain. So when you read this passage, think of a life-threatening illness. Think, think about an injury, a condition that just is life-changing. We might think of somebody that has had a heart attack or cancer or a stroke or, or a, a terrible accident, something like that. And James offers us three ways in which we can approach prayer for physical healing. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't pray in the little things. Don't hear me saying that. God wants us to pray to bring all of our cares and concerns to Him. But what James is talking about here is a very serious health condition. And the first thing he says is that they should call for the pastors. Call for the pastors. When a brother or sister in Christ is seriously ill, James says they should take the initiative and contact the elders of the church. Now, what does James mean by this word elders? Not really a term we use here at First Baptist Church. He's not talking about older church members. There are three Greek words in the New Testament that all refer to the same New Testament office of the church. There are two offices of the church in the New Testament, deacon and pastor. And so these three words refer to the office of pastor. Uh, the word translated here, elder, is the Greek word presbyteros. It's where we get the word presbyterian from. Uh, there's another word often translated overseer or bishop, which is episkopos. And that's where we get the word episcopalian from. And then the third word is poimen, which is translated shepherd or pastor. And we don't have any poimenians. I, I don't know why, but there are no denominations named after that word. 
Now, all three of these terms happen to be found in the same passage of Scripture where Peter is writing to pastors. Look what he says in 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you, that's that word presbyteros, uh, as a fellow elder and witness to the suffering of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. So he kind of says, hey, I'm, I'm an elder, I'm speaking to elders. Here's what he tells them. Shepherd God's flock among you. That word shepherd is that word poimane. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing, there's episcopos, out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed, not lording it over them, but being examples to the flock. So here we see in this one passage all three of these words that are describing the same office in the church, that of pastors, the spiritual leaders of a local church to whom God has given oversight and care of that flock of His sheep. So what James is saying here, he's instructing the sick person to call the pastors of the church to come and to pray over them. Now let me ask you a question, and I'm being honest here. Is there something super special, spiritual, or magical about my prayers over that of a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or any of you? Do I have some kind of direct hotline bat phone to God? No. At least no more than any of us do. We all have a direct line to God, and that's called prayer, right? My prayers are no more powerful than anybody else's prayers as long as they're prayed in faith, in the name of Jesus, and for the right reasons. Again, remember what kind of sickness James is talking about. He's talking about a serious condition. So imagine, the example here is as someone who is so sick, they're so homebound or bedridden, they can't gather with the body of Christ. They can't come and be with the rest of the church in worship. And so the pastors who shepherd the congregation come to pray over them as a representative of the rest of the church. That pastor is there not because he's somehow closer to God. He's there to represent the congregation in prayer for this person. As a pastor, I'm never happy to to pray for somebody because they're sick or in the hospital, but I'm always honored. I count it as a sacred honor whenever I get to be a a reflection of the presence of God and a representation of you, their church family, to pray with somebody before surgery or while they're in the hospital or if they're they're homesick with, with some condition. But listen, I'm human. My prayers, again, are no more special, no more powerful than any of your prayers might be. And because I'm human... I also don't know that somebody is in the hospital or about to have surgery or sick if they don't do what James has said and contact the church, right? I don't have some, you know, like radar or spotty sense that lets me know that so-and-so needs prayer right now. Somebody's in the hospital. I need you to let us know. It it amazes me sometimes the people that, that don't let the church know, don't let me know, and then they're like, well, you never came to see me. I didn't know you were in the hospital. But listen, and I think I can speak for Matt and I can speak for Ben and tell you this, that whenever one of us is asked to come and pray for someone or to visit someone, we will do it. We will do it. Call for the elders of the church and we will come and we will pray. And when we pray and when you pray, the second thing James says is pray in faith. Pray in faith. I said our prayers are the same if we pray in faith. And look at verse 15. He says, The prayer of faith will save the sick person. Now, this Greek word for faith means to trust in. 
It means to have confidence in it. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just, well, I kind of hope this works. You know, it's not like that. It means we truly believe God hears and answers our prayers. And it means that we trust in the sovereign will of God. Because, listen, God does not always answer our prayers when and how we want, does He? And so part of praying in faith means that we trust His goodness and His grace even if in the moment we don't understand it. And that goes back to chapter 1 where James talks about counting it all joy when we endure various trials. We can count it joy in faith because we trust that God is going to receive the glory and somehow He's going to work this out for our good. So we pray with faith. We call for the pastors to come and pray to represent the prayers of the church. Secondly, we, we pray in faith. And third, we anoint with oil. Hmm. This is the part that raises questions and controversies. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've never prayed for somebody and put oil on their head. I've not done that. What do we do with this part of this verse? Remember, James's emphasis is on what? Prayer. Prayer is what he's writing about. And the importance of prayer and that when prayer is answered, when healing comes, it always comes from God. I think we can agree on these things. But this is a little outside of our comfort zone as Baptists, right? I mean, this just seems a little out there and strange. What does James mean by this? Well, traditionally, there are two main interpretations. And so the first thing we have to ask ourselves and consider is, is this medicinal? Is this oil medicinal? If you remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says that the Samaritan, when he helps the the Jewish man that's been beaten up, he applies oil and wine to his wounds. The oil to soothe, the wine to cleanse and disinfect. So, some people say that James is commanding the sick to turn to their pastors for prayer and to the doctor for medicine. Now listen, that's good advice. I advise you to do that. Don't come to me for medicine or medical advice, All right. Sort of like one day Abby kind of was thinking about I was getting ready to go for one of my doctoral seminars and she looked up and she said, so dad... When you get to be a doctor, I guess that means that you can just give me medicine when I'm sick, right? And I said, well, I mean, I'm not that, I won't be that kind of a doctor. And I tried to explain all that. And so she looked at me just deadpan and said, so not a real doctor. <clears throat> yes, I guess so, if you want to put it that way. So there are some problems with interpreting this uh, as being medicinal first, um, though using oil as a conveyor of medicine was common in this culture. Nowhere in the New Testament is this word ever used to to refer to medicine. Okay, So we don't have any pattern from Scripture to tell us that. Secondly, why would it be the pastors who are applying the medical care? Remember, James specifically said that the pastors are to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, not a real doctor. Don't come to me for your drugs. All right, I'm not going to give them to you. I promise you that. Come to me for prayer. Go to somebody, go, go see Susan or Bob or somebody else for your medicine, okay? So I don't think that it's medicinal. But the second interpretation we should think is, is it sacramental? Is it sacramental? Now, this is the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that the oil actually removes the remnant of sin and strengthens the soul as the person prepares for death. And so this is uh, a sacred oil that's applied by priests only and it's applied as part of the last rites before death. Again, I don't think that's what James is saying because the implication here is that the person's going to get better, right? I mean, that's sort of the point, is to pray for them, anoint them so they'll be healed. So I don't think that's what he means. 
In a similar way, charismatic denominations use oil in a sacramental way, but they believe that the actual application of the oil in faith brings healing. And one of the problems with that is that people then tend to, tend to sort of associate the oil as having some kind of a, you know, magical power or whatever, that the, that the healing power is in the oil. I don't think either of these interpretations are correct. I think there's a third consideration. Is the oil symbolic? Is it symbolic? The way baptism is symbolic. It doesn't wash away your sins. The Lord's Supper is symbolic. It doesn't convey any grace upon us. It's not the literal body and blood of Jesus. Well, throughout the Old Testament, olive oil was used in a symbolic way. It was used to anoint, to sanctify and set apart people, animals, objects for special divine purposes. It was used to make them holy, to make them set apart for God. So to anoint with oil in that way would mean you're setting the sick person apart for God's special care and attention. Symbolizing that we are wanting God to give special care and attention to this person. So the oil in that way becomes not only a representation of God's attention, I think it also becomes a physical representation of the prayers of the church. Remember who's applying the oil? The pastor, who is coming as a representative of the congregation to bring their prayers to this person. So when the pastor comes and and, and gives that oil, it's to help that person feel God's presence and to feel the presence of the church that they can no longer physically gather with. Now, if this is true, and this is the interpretation I prefer, then it has some interesting implications for us. Think about the ways in which we try to remind ourselves that we are a part of the body of Christ when we can't gather and worship. Okay? Three words come to my mind. YouTube, Facebook, and the radio. Right? We are able to use sight and sound to stay connected with our church family in a way people 2,000 years ago could never do. And we have other ways in which we do that as well. And, and, and listen, I, I just have to say that, that it, it always cheers my heart when I talk to people and they tell me, I listen to you on the radio every Sunday. I'm watching on my television, you know, or on my iPad or whatever every week. It just thrills my heart that, that so many of our, of our dear saints are at home right now. And, and several of you I've talked to even just in the past couple of weeks about how faithful it is. You're by that radio. You're watching on that computer. And God bless you. We are so grateful that, that we've got the technology to help you and to help anybody stay connected with the church family when they can't be here. But there are other things. There's newsletters and Sunday school quarterlies and Facebook and websites. There's church directories and phone calls and cards and church merch, you know, hats and T-shirts. There's all kinds of stuff that we use to remind us of who who we belong to, of who our church family is. Now, I think maybe the anointing oil served a similar purpose back then. Imagine, and this isn't just like olive oil from the table at, you know, at the Olive Garden, right? This isn't just something, you know, this is oil that's been, it's had fragrance added to it. It's had different spices put into it. So just imagine, the pastor has come, he's prayed for this person, he's anointed them with this oil. Long after the pastor is gone, that oil is there. That fragrance lingers. Sort of like when you visit somebody and you leave a card or flowers behind to remind them that you were there. That's what the oil was meant to accomplish to remind them that they're not alone and they're not forgotten. Now, one other thing I want to say, nowhere else in the New Testament is this ever mentioned about anointing someone with oil for healing. And we know that there were lots of people healed that were never anointed with oil. 
So I don't think that the point of the passage is that anoint people with oil so they'll be healed. It's a part of this whole process of, of praying, and not just the prayer of the pastors, but according to verse 16, it's the prayers of all the believers in the church. If we take verse 14 into this broader context, what James is saying is he wants all of the church to pray for each other. The power is not in the oil. The power is not in the pastor. The power for healing is in God alone. Amen? And His healing power is made available through prayer, especially the prayer of His people. Now, the last thing he tells us for the sick person is that they must then trust God's answer. Look at verse 15 again. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, a couple things here. One, James is not saying that every sickness that we experience is the result of some sort of sin. I think Jesus makes that perfectly clear when he goes to heal a blind man and the disciples are arguing about why is he blind. Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus says, none, neither. He's blind so that God will be glorified as I heal him right now. But I think we have to acknowledge that some sickness does have sin at its root. That's why James says, if he has sinned. In 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, Paul writes about how some people got sick and even died because they ate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So I think in cases like that, James implies that God's going to let the sick person know. He's going to give them an awareness of their sin so they can confess it and pray for forgiveness. Now, what are some examples today of sickness that can come as a result of sin? Well, I think about any number of conditions that, that are a result of people being stressed and worried, right? They, they, just, they just worry themselves to death or they work themselves to death, right? They're not resting. They're not, there's no balance in their life. They're overworking. Uh, we think about people who, who abuse alcohol and drugs and the different conditions that can lead to, in, in addition to addiction, not being good stewards of our body. Can I get an amen? You know, what we eat and how much we sleep and exercise that we get, you know, those kinds of things. So it's not necessarily sometimes what we do, it's what we fail to do. Committing sexual sin can come with a host of physical ailments, harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. We could go on. So maybe the lesson there is that we should use a sickness as a time of self-examination. To ask ourselves, is there something in my life that maybe has led to this? Probably not, but there may be. Is there something in my life that I need to change as a result of this? But we don't need to take that too far. Because while not all sin is the result of a specific... All sickness is the result of a specific sin, all sickness is the result of capital S sin. The reason we get sick and the reason that we get injured and the reason that we die is we live in a sinful, fallen world under the curse and effects of sin. Now, another thing that James is not saying, he's not saying that healing is always the outcome of the prayer of faith. Physical healing is not a given. So listen, if someone is not healed that you've prayed for, that doesn't mean that you failed in your praying. That doesn't mean that you failed in having enough faith don't blame yourself any more than we should always blame some sin for our sickness. We shouldn't blame ourselves because we or someone we prayed for didn't get better. Remember, faith itself is a gift from God. It's not something I generate in and of myself. Or another way to think about it is like this. Let's say you've been praying for somebody who was very ill and they got better. They were healed. God answered that prayer. Would you go around saying, hey, you see that person over there? They were on their deathbed. The doctor said it was, they needed a miracle. I prayed for them and they got healed. I did that. 
Would you do that? Neither should we blame ourselves if we've prayed for someone and they didn't get healed. See what I'm saying? It's not about us. The prayer of faith is not something that I create within myself. It's not like in Peter Pan. Remember in Peter Pan when Tinkerbell was dying and Peter Pan says, I do believe in fairies. I do believe, I believe, I believe. That's not how the prayer of faith works. It's not I'll just say, I believe, I double, triple, double dog dare believe. That's not what it's about. One Christian author, John Blanchard, wrote this, The prayer offered in faith is circular in shape. It begins and ends in heaven in the sovereign will of God. So as you can see, there's a lot of room for some confusion and bad theology when it comes to praying for healing. We have to be careful about how we connect our health with, with how well we pray or how much faith we have or with any particular sin because sin doesn't always lead to sickness and prayer, even in faith, doesn't always lead to healing. And so James illustrates this in verses 17 and 18. He says, Elijah was a human being as we are. In other words, nothing special about Elijah. He was a man just like you know me. He was a human being just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced the fruit. Now, James is using Elijah to point out that our faith must always be according to the promise of God. To really understand what James is saying, you've got to go back to 1 Kings 17 and 18 and read that story. And if you read that story, you'll discover that Elijah did everything according to the word of the Lord. That's That phrase is used a lot. He did everything according to the word of the Lord. God said that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And then God said it would rain, and then it rained. God used Elijah's prayer as the vehicle through which he accomplished his word. Elijah's not demanding for God to do something. Rather, it's the other way around. Elijah prayed according to the word of God, trusting that God would do what he said, and he did. Now, let's apply that to someone or something maybe that you've been praying for. You've been praying for God to provide in some way, to work in some miraculous way, to heal somebody. Has God given you a clear and decisive word that He is going to physically heal that person or change that situation? Maybe. Maybe not. Sometimes the clear, decisive word we get from God is no. He's not going to do that. I think about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he writes, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Three times he prayed. He pleaded for God to remove whatever this, this, this affliction was. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And what changed wasn't his situation. What changed was Paul, his heart. Look at his response. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. He pleaded three times for God to take it away, but the result was he now delights in it because he understands better what God is doing. Now, some of you may say, well, what about what Jesus says in places like John 14, 14, where he said, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Well, what about that? Well, the answer is right there, in my name. 
Praying in the name of Jesus is the key to powerful, effective praying. When you pray in Jesus' name, it means that you're praying according to God's Word. You're praying for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means you're seeking God's glory and you're trusting Him to work all things together for our good. You're not dictating something to God. You're not trying to manipulate God into doing something that He doesn't want to do. Praying according to God's will, praying in the name of Jesus, means that we come to desire what God desires. We want what He wants. And so in prayer then we express our desire to see the Word of God in action, to see His will done, to see the name of Jesus exalted, to see the kingdom of heaven come down. We must humbly acknowledge that God sees in those things that we don't. Right? He knows the future. We don't. He knows what's truly best. We don't. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't freely express to God what our heart's desire is? If you really want to be healed or see somebody healed, you really need this provision from God, does that mean we shouldn't ask for that? No. God desires us to do that. He longs for us to come to Him. But it means we always have an attitude that says, God, if it's not your will to change this situation, then change me. Change my heart. Change my desires. Help me to better understand what you're doing. Now, in addition to praying for physical healing in times of sickness, finally, James says to pray for spiritual healing in times of sin. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You know, as Christians, we still struggle with sin, don't we? Don't we? Yeah, we'll never, we're never going to be freed from the presence and power of sin until either we're in Jesus in he- with Jesus in heaven or Jesus comes back. But until then, it's still something we contend with. And sometimes we sin against each other. What are we to do in that kind of a situation? Well, James tells us to confess our sins to each other and to pray for each other. Now, again, this can be confusing. People sometimes don't understand. So every time I have a, a bad thought about somebody, I should go tell them. <laughs> no, that's not what that means. Here's a rule of thumb, and this is not original to me. Confession should be as wide as the effect of the sin. So that means if I sin secretly, confess it to God and be done. If I sin against somebody else, confess it to God and to them and be done. If I sin publicly, then you confess it to God and you confess it publicly. You get it? So your confession matches the scope, the reach of the sin that you've committed. And if someone confesses to you that they have wronged you, they've sinned against you, be just as willing to grant them forgiveness as Jesus is willing to forgive you. Treat them the way you want God to treat you. That's how we can be reconciled. That's how broken relationships can be healed. Notice that it's in this context of forgiving each other of sin and and those healing relationships. It's in that context that James makes this amazing statement where he says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So when a righteous person prays, it's powerful. It's effective. And he uses Elijah as that example. Isn't that the kind of prayer we want to have? We can't have that kind of prayer if we're not willing to confess our sins and forgive when other people sin against us. Just like faith and grace, 
Just like patience and perseverance, just like forgiveness, prayer begins and ends with God. Charles Spurgeon said, God the Holy Ghost writes our prayers, God the Son presents our prayers, and God the Father accepts our prayers. And with the whole Trinity to help us in it, what cannot prayer perform? With God being the source and the recipient of our prayers, what can prayer not perform? And listen, the greatest thing that prayer can ever perform is for you to receive God's free, life-changing gift of grace. Have you prayed and given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you prayed in confession of your sins to Jesus and asked Him to forgive you, to wash you clean, to come and live inside of you as the Lord of your life? Listen, that is the first and greatest prayer anybody can ever pray, and that's a prayer God will always answer. Maybe this morning you need to come and you need to pray that prayer. You need to come and say, David, I want to pray and give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to live for Him, not for myself. I need His forgiveness and grace. Will you help me pray that prayer? I'd be glad to help you pray that prayer this morning. But to those of us that are Christians, notice that everything James has said about prayer and healing and forgiveness and these verses is in the context of a church family. How else can you call for the pastors of the church to pray for you? How else can the prayers of the people of God be upon you? How can you be reminded you're a part of a bigger family of faith? Where else are you going to find that righteous person to pray for your healing? To whom else will you go in confession of your sins and to pray with one another? But the church, the assumption for all of this is that undergirded by it all, you're a part of a family of faith that loves you and walks with you and prays for you. First Baptist Church wants to be that kind of church family. Maybe God is leading you and your family to say, this is where I want to live and serve. This is where I want to pray and be prayed for. This is where I want to grow in my walk with Christ. For those of us that are members of First Baptist Church, maybe what God is saying to you is, you need to confess to somebody. You need to do a better job of praying for other people and asking other people to pray for you, by the way. Sometimes we get a little prideful. We don't want to ask for those prayers. What is God speaking to your heart today? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. Lord, we're thankful that You give us so many ways and so many opportunities to come to You in prayer. The God of the universe, the Creator of the cosmos, cares about me and listens to what I have to say, listens to my pleas. Father, may we never forget that or take that for granted, that in Christ Jesus we have direct access to Your throne in prayer. Father, help us to pray in faith. Help us to pray according to Your will in the name of Jesus, Lord. Help us when, when the situation isn't in Your will to change, then change our hearts that we can find the ways in which to bring You glory and to use it for the furthering of the gospel. Father, forgive us when we don't come to You in prayer, when we don't have the faith, when we don't take the time, when we maybe are a little ambivalent and apathetic. God, stir our hearts to prayer. Give us a divine thirst to want to be in Your presence. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would move right now and that we would be obedient to whatever it is that You're calling us to do. In the name of Jesus we pray.